Genesis chapter 15. We remember that Abram and Lot uh, came to a fork in the road after they left Egypt. And they had to part ways. And uh, Abram chose to live in Hebron, Hebron, which was just a few miles away from Jerusalem. But Lot chose the Jordan Valley. He was actually living in uh, the city of Sodom. And in chapter 13, verse 13, we're told a little bit about that city. Uh, actually, we know several things already because we've met the king and, and those kind of things. But uh, the men of Sodom, in verse 13, were evil, uh, sinning greatly against the Lord. And so that is the... as your minds may fast forward a little bit into this book to think about some other things that are going to occur in Sodom. And, uh, it might be helpful for us to remember that this is uh, God's assessment of that. So this is where Lot chose to live. And, and uh, so they, they chose two very different paths. We talked about that. Lot actually ended up a, a prisoner in the middle of a war between uh, a king in Mesopotamia and the five kings of uh, the Jordan Valley and uh, those five kings and so through a miracle God rescued Lot through Abram's very small army it was a miracle and uh, we remember that after that miraculous victory that Abram was approached by the king of Sodom and by the king of Salem or the king of Jerusalem and Abram chose to submit to God under Melchizedek. So this brings us to Genesis chapter 15. Let's read the first uh, six verses together. It says, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look at the sky, count the stars, if you are able to count them. And then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So chapter 15 opens in light of these events that have occurred. Uh, the relationship he had with, uh, with his wife and, and how they moved into Egypt. And then the relationship he has with Lot and how they parted ways. And then got into the middle of this war with these city-states. And so verse 1 says, it's after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he tells Abram, don't be afraid. I will be your shield, and your reward will be very great. Well, after this incredible victory, why is Abram so scared? Why is all of a sudden him, he afraid? Well, for one thing, he's surrounded by enemies. Uh, they left Egypt on bad terms. He's, you know, has relationships with these city states in Jordan Valley, but he didn't submit to them. So 
that was kind of an uncomfortable relationship now. And of course, the, the kings of Mesopotamia that he just was at war with. So on all fronts, on all sides, he is surrounded by enemies. And this kind of reminds us of, uh, of Elijah, you know, running away and hiding from Jezebel after that miraculous standoff on Mount Carmel against the priests of Baal. Very similar. So this is why God told him that he was a shield and that his reward would be very great. You know, so much of life is spent uh, living in the in-between. My dad always said that life is what happens while you're trying to do something, while you're trying to achieve a goal. So we, we always have goals, things that we're wanting to see happen. But life is that period of time while you're trying to do that. And so, so much of the Christian life is living in between the, the promise and the fulfillment. Um, Warren Wiersbe said that faith is seldom strengthened by success. Faith is seldom strengthened by success. It is strengthened in the midst of difficulty. So, God encourages each one of us to uh, not step away from the lighted path. Um, there was a missionary couple that was retired and uh, from uh, spending their entire life together in Africa as missionaries. And so they were returning back to the States uh, on a ship. And it so happened that President Teddy Roosevelt was also on that ship returning from Africa, but he was coming back from a big uh, game hunt. And so as they pulled into the New York Harbor, there was great fanfare. The mayor was there. There was other dignitaries. There was a brass band playing. Uh, there was a limousine that was going to take the president away to a luxury hotel. But there was nobody there to welcome this missionary couple. Nobody was there to, to welcome them home, to celebrate their return. And uh, the husband had his feelings hurt about that. And so he was saying to his wife, that's not fair. This doesn't seem right. You know, that Nobody's here to welcome us home. And so they talked a little bit about it. Finally, his wife said, well, you're just going to have to pray about it. And so he did. And eventually he came back to his wife and he said, you know, the matter is resolved in my heart now. Um, he said, I told God what I thought about it. I just didn't feel like it was fair at all. That nobody was there to welcome us home. And, and uh, he said, but it was, it was almost as if God put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, well, you're not home yet. So God wants us to continue to be encouraged knowing that he is our shield and that our reward is very great. We just don't see it yet. So he encourages us not to step away from the lighted path. Well, here Abrams tells God the, the major problem. You know, he's, he's got, Abram is a leader of all of these people. And everything that is happening is based upon this promise that God has made to him that he's going to have you know, children. He doesn't have any. And he says here, I'm childless, and the heir of my house is, uh, is the servant from Damascus. And so, uh, you know, this man had been born in his home, and he was probably a very trusted friend, someone that Abram had probably raised as his own son. And when him and Sarah were, were so old and not able to care for themselves and care for their estates, this man was going to do that. And so he was a, a close man to, the, to their family, 
but he wasn't their son. And this is when God uh, talked to Abram about that. And we remember that in chapter 13, he compared the descendants, that Ab- the kids that uh, Abram was going to have with the dust of the earth. And God said, you know, if you could actually count the dust, you know, the point is, is that you're not going to be able to count how many kids, that how many descendants are going to come from you. It's so enormous. It's so vast. It's not something you're even going to be capable of measuring. And so here he does the same thing, except he takes them outside and he shows them uh, the stars and he asks them to count them. And Gene talked about the, um, the stars in Sunday school and uh, we talked about the creation and, you know, um, the more we learn about it, the more stars we find out about, you know, uh, there's more, always more to learn and there's always a ton of them out there. And so this is what he is trying to get Abram to see is that, um, well, uh, I think we can all relate to Abram because uh, he just couldn't see past his circumstance. And uh, that's how we are, you know. I mean, uh, he, he hears God's promise. He, he knows who God is, and he believes in him as a person. And he believes the promise because of who God is, but he can't see it happening. And, uh, you know, all he can see is this the servant that's his heir, but God can see the dust of the earth, and God can see the stars in the heavens. You know? So this is why we have to trust him. Well, then we come to verse 6, which is one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. It's one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. It is a verse that's quoted in the New Testament a number of times. It is uh, a very important verse. Uh, your version may say, uh, Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and it was accounted to him as righteousness. My version says the word credited. And this is the doctrine of justification by faith. This is, a, this is what this is talking about. Um, we know that Christ took our sin upon himself when he went on to the cross. And so our sin was imputed to Christ. And when we um, put our faith in him, when we trust in him as our savior, his righteousness is imputed to us. See? And uh, this is something that uh, we call justification. Um, Here's a a verse of many that explain this to us. That Jesus was, was made to be sin. And that he, and this was all so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Now, this does not occur because of our performance but because of our faith in God's promise. This is really important for us to remember that uh, the, the secret to this is something that nobody understands. I remember talking at my brother's funeral about um, substitutionary atonement. It's something that nobody understands except Christians. We're the only people in the whole world that, that get it. And it's because God's opened our eyes. And so, if you're a Christian, then you know what justification by faith means. It means that um, you were saved, not based upon your performance, but simply because you put your faith in what God has promised you. 
And this is salvation. Now, uh, if you have your bulletin, what you could do is, is just kind of put it here in Genesis 15 because we're going to uh, go to the book of Romans chapter 4 for just a minute. Romans chapter 4. Uh, eventually, God is going to tell Abram to be circumcised. And uh, this is going to be a sign of the covenant that God has made with him. And so uh, there were people who were circumcised and there's people who are not circumcised. And so people outside of the covenant are the uncircumcised. And so there's a point that Paul's going to be making here that is, it quotes this verse, it quotes Genesis 15, 6 here, but uh, look at the point he's making. We'll begin in verse, uh, verse 9, chapter 4 of Romans. It says, is this blessing only for the circumcised then, salvation, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? What's the answer? Abram's not circumcised yet at all, is it? There's no act. There's nothing he did to become uh, justified. It was by faith. So uh, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised not only to those who are circumcised but also to those who follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham faith that he had while still uncircumcised. So you can go back to Genesis 15 now, but uh, that passage is very important because it shows us, it makes it very crystal clear, Paul's making the point, very crystal clear to us that uh, salvation is by faith. It's not faith plus. It's not faith plus these things. You know, uh, It's just simply trusting in, in God. Um, what's that mean? It means that if I tell you something, if I make a promise to you, then you make an assessment about me as a person. You think, well, okay, who's Craig? Um, can I count on this to happen? Uh, Craig might mean well, but can Craig really do it? You know. And so this is what we do with God. We think, okay, I know who God is, and he's capable of doing what he says. And he's telling me he's going to do it. And so we trust him. This is salvation, trusting in God to save you, trusting in God to rescue you. And that's all you have to do. You're putting your faith in him as a person. So let's finish the chapter, begin in verse 7. And he also said to him, God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. He said, Lord God, how, how can I know that I will possess it? He said, okay, well, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these things to him, split them down the middle, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut up the birds. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and suddenly a terror, a great darkness, descended on him. And then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know this for certain. Your offspring will be strangers in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions. But you, Abram, you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Ammonites, Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Verse 17, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Well, this is kind of weird, isn't it? This cutting these animals up. Whenever we make promises with each other, it's not really what we do, is it? But uh, God either instructed Abraham to, to Abram to kill the animals, to split them down the middle, and to lay their pieces opposite each other, or Abram just understood this to be a command to prepare for this covenant. Um, like I said, this is not really something that's common now, but it was back in the time. Uh, there, there, um, there have been discoveries. Uh, there are some artifacts that um, uh, describe these kind of agreements just in, in different variations. There's blood oaths and uh, uh, treaties, even wedding ceremonies. There's ceremony, uh, wedding vows, uh, uh, covenants made between the parents. Uh, so there's some of these ceremonial treaties and things. There are some of these. And the idea is that when whoever, the, the people who enter between the two pieces are saying that the same thing will happen to them if they fail to abide by the terms. And so uh, God has instructed Abram to bring these animals. He knows exactly what he's supposed to do with them because he's supposed to be entering into some type of a covenant with God. And, you know, maybe this is one reason Abram became so terrified. You know, because um, if he's anything like us, we all know that there's a great likelihood that we will fail to keep the terms. And uh, Augustine, I've always said Augustine, but I'll never be able to get that out of my head, but Augustine and, uh, and even, even Spurgeon at, at one point, both they said something to the same effect that uh, if someone thinks something bad about you or uh, they think less of you and so for some reason, they both said, uh, don't feel too bad about that. Uh, don't get so upset because you know that you are far worse than they think you are. <laughs> Another example of this type of a covenant is actually in the Bible. With these dismembering these animals, it's actually in the Bible. Um, when Jerusalem was under, under siege by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Judah was named Zedekiah. And at different times, the prophet Jeremiah would send pronouncements to the king. Um, uh, the city's going to burn. You're going to die. Um, these kind of things. Uh, well, you're going to be captured is what he told him. Um, but in the past, the king had made a covenant with the people. And this covenant was to release the, 
all of the uh, Hebrew slaves and give them back their freedom. And that was part of this covenant that they had made. Um, but after they made the covenant and let them go, they changed their minds and took them back. So uh, one of the pronouncements that uh, Jeremiah brought to Zedekiah was in reference to that uh, covenant. And so here in, in Jeremiah 34, uh, verse 18, it says, as for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two in order to pass between its pieces. Then verse 20, and all the people of the land who passed between the pieces of the calf will be handed over to their enemies. So we can see the, the basis for what's happening here between God and Abram with these animals. Now, at some point this vision ends and Abram goes and he prepares these animals. But God doesn't come back. And so he spends the entire day, you know, waiting and chasing away these birds of prey that are trying to, you know, eat the carcasses. And so there's that place again in the in-between, in between the promise and the fulfillment. So much of life is right there. And, and as, as God delays, we see that there are those who will keep continuously, mercilessly, try to thwart God's plans. And so while we are, we have been promised things by God and they are not yet fulfilled, while we wait, we are to stay alert, to be ready for his return, knowing that there will be conflict, there will be, a, there is an adversary who is working against us and he is not going to stop. Uh, this is a picture here. And so uh, we also see that this delay is going to extend a long time. In this, in this prophetic message that God gave Abram, he told him that, you know, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to have all of these descendants. Or you, you won't even be able to count them all. But you guys are going to be taken uh, captive into another nation for 400 years. Um, but after that happens, in the fourth generation, there in verse 16, they will return back here to the land uh, because the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so what God is saying there is that the Amorites are storing up judgment upon themselves. Wrath is coming, but it hasn't reached the point to where I've had enough. And so he's talking to Abram at that point, and he knows the future. He sees what they're doing, but because God is, is patient and he is does not want anyone to perish, uh, he waits. And we've seen this. Uh, we, we talked about the city of Sodom there in verse chapter 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 13, talks about the, the sinful nature of the people, the men of Sodom. And, but we know that God has not lowered the boom there yet. Uh, when God had chosen, decided that he was going to flood the earth, he waited 120 years to do it, you know. So God is definitely going to uh, God is definitely going to judge, a, judge the world even though there is a delay. And this is why people in the last days will be mocking him, will be mocking us for believing in Jesus and awaiting for him. Uh, I was supposed to show you that slide right there. So that's pretty neat. And uh, that's Israel. Um, but then we come to this uh, next verse here. 
Verse 17, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. Now we all know who R.C. Sproul is, and I was listening to him one time, and he was talking about how his, his son was in school, and she asked the question, the teacher asked the question, and said, well, who wrote the Bible? And he said, well, my dad. And uh, so she thought that was funny, so she told him that later, and he was like, Ugh. so he gets his son home, he says, son, why would you think that I wrote the Bible? And um, he said, well, and he begins to explain that when his dad would teach, uh, afterwards he would sell his books, and people would bring the books up to him to autograph, and they would also bring their Bibles up there. He would sign the Bibles too, and uh, which I thought was, he thought that was kind of weird that people do that, but I've done that. I used to take my son up and have him get pastor signatures on his Bible, but uh, anyway, so he was saying that, so, uh, and, he, and he also said that it was funny because when I would come up to have, you, have him sign it, they'd say, well, what's your life verse? He said, what's my what? I said, what's your life verse? He said, I don't even know. You know, so he, it was a whole new concept to him, you know, but people do want to know what your, your life verse is, what your favorite verse is. And so he said, well, if I could only have one book in the world, I'd want the Bible. And if I could only have one book out of the Bible, it would be the book of Hebrews. He said, but if I could only have one verse, it would be Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. And that's because this is when God and God alone pass between the divided animals. The covenant is not conditioned upon Abraham's obedience. It's an unconditional covenant when God says, this is what I've decided that I'm going to do. Now the significance of the smoking fire pot, this, or oven, and the flaming torch, they represent purification and deliverance. Um, these two items uh, are God. This is God promising to fulfill everything just as he has said. Now, uh, two things in closing. Uh, in regards to salvation, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles have been grafted into this blessing and, and they're also heirs of the promise. Now, uh, Galatians chapter 3, I won't ask you to turn there unless you just want to, but Galatians 3 is another place where Paul cites this passage. Um, and in citing it, he's talking about uh, Abram and this promise that God made to him. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Now the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. And then verse 29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. And so Gentiles have been grafted in. We are now part of this Abrahamic covenant. We're part of this promise. Uh, and this is what Paul is explaining to us in Galatians chapter 3. Now, uh, it might sound like a, a switching gears here, but if we think ahead to the Great Tribulation, the, the period of time that is described so many places and ways in, in the Bible, when you think about the Great Tribulation, what is the area of focus? The focus is Jerusalem. 
It's Israel. It's the Jewish people. This is where the final battles are fought. And the Antichrist has a target. And his target is Israel. In the end times. And at the conclusion of the Great Tribulation, Jesus returns to the earth to rescue the believing remnant of Israel. Why is this important for us to know? It's important for us to know because God keeps his promises. I'm going to ask you to turn to one more place. It's the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. And at the very end of the Old Testament, right before you get to Matthew, is the book of Malachi. If you just go just to the left a little bit more, you'll come to Zechariah. Zechariah, chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord concerning Israel, a declaration of the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundation of the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. God. He says, Look, I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering for the peoples who surround the city. The siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely when all the nations of the earth gather against her. Think of it. It's telling us that in the future, all of the nations of the earth are going to be against Israel. This is the focal point of the Great Tribulation. And... If America is still exists at that point, we'll be one of those nations. Verse 4, On that day, the Lord's declaration, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. I will keep a watchful eye on the house of Judah, but strike all the horses of the nations with blindness. Then each of the leaders of Judah will think to himself, The residents of Jerusalem are my strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. You see that? Genesis 15, verse 17. Verse 6. On that day I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the peoples around them on the right and the left, while Jerusalem continues to be inhabited on its site in Jerusalem. So there's the purification. There's the deliverance. Verse 7, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of David's house and the glory of Jerusalem's residence may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the one who is weakest among them will be like David on that day. The house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem. And they will look at me whom they pierced. The nation of Israel will be, just being Jewish is not going to be, you don't go to heaven just because you're Jewish. Remember John the Baptist said, don't think you're going to escape judgment. 
just because you're the child of Abraham. It is the ones who turn to Christ. The Bible actually tells us that there will be a believing remnant, the majority of surviving people of the nation of Israel in the future are going to return to God and repent. So the, the chapter continues talking about the repentant heart of this nation. Uh, when they see Jesus, when they see me, whom they have pierced. Let's pray.